You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Well, hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Middle East Analysis. It's August, it's warm, it's the summer. I'm delighted to say, as normal, I'm joined by Dr. Harry Hagopian down the line because we are remote again. Don't worry, we haven't delved back into the worst of the pandemic. This is a necessary operation on ours. We do it sometimes if Harry's away. We do it sometimes if we can't be face to face. Any number of reasons. You're remote, but you're very much with us, Harry. Yes, uh, we are, uh, James, and it's a pleasure to uh, do this monthly Middle East analysis with you again. I suspect that it's face-to-face is more fun, but as <laughs> you said, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely. Yes, face-to-face is more fun. You know that I enjoy meeting up with you, but that, that can wait for a week or two. Now, this particular Middle East analysis has got, I suppose, something of a human rights theme, but we'll come on to that. I think, first of all, we need to define Middle East analysis and who it's for, really, Harry. We've talked about this a little bit off the record, haven't we? Now, it's very much for a Western English-speaking audience. I think that needs to be made clear. And we've kind of, you know, we, we've always done it that way for over a decade now. Sometimes we get asked, well, why don't you delve even deeper into the Arab world and the Arab psyche? And we, we try to do that in our way, but with that aforementioned audience in mind, don't we, Harry? We we certainly do. And thank you for mentioning that, James, because I've been asked a couple of times, why don't I delve deeper? Why don't I go into denser analyses? Why don't I give more examples of people or incidents or facts and figures? And it's because we in the West, uh, and that includes the English-speaking West across the board, we have so many other issues that uh, are at the forefront of our attention that things to do with the Middle East, North Africa and the Gulf are not necessarily always there. And if I go too deep, if I go too technical, if I'm a bit too finickety with what I say and don't say, we might lose some people. And that is not the purpose of the exercise. I mean, I'm not here competing with anybody. You're not here competing with anybody. We're doing this as a way of introducing some broad themes to an audience, to a listenership that basically would get a a feeling, as it were, of what is happening across this wide neighborhood, a beautiful, exciting neighborhood, but a very problematic one nonetheless, and how we are reacting to it. It is basically food for thought. And it's very interesting. I'm going to give you a little story here. I was having a meeting with a diplomat with one of the Arab ambassadors recently. And as we were talking, the conversation somehow uh, ended up with my YouTubes and my Middle East uh, analysis and the interviews I do. And he sort of said, you don't really go into too many intimate and intricate details, do you? And I said, no. And before I could basically explain to him what I just said to you, he said, and he's a very, very on the ball kind of diplomat ambassador. He sort of said, you know what? This is important because the Arab street knows a lot because they live politics, they sleep politics, they eat politics, they breathe politics. So their life is basically all about politics for the simple reason that it is thrown at them 
day in, day out. There is no way to escape it. Whereas in the West, it's different. So he said, what you're doing is you're not going in that direction. You're going in the direction of the West, Europe in particular, but also United States, Australia, and other English-speaking countries, and telling them, hey, guys, have you thought of this? Or did you think that there might be another viewpoint for that? That's basically what you and I are doing. And it's really great to have an ally like you as producer and presenter, because you understand what we're doing. And you're not there just to impress people. You're there to convey a message. And together, once a month, I think it's, uh, it's a good job what we're doing. Well, certainly a good job that you're doing, Harry. As you say, I mean, if we were to do it differently, I'm sure you'd pick a producer and presenter who was in and out of the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf states as much as you. So clearly we're, we're talking to a, a certain audience. We're trying to get a bit behind the headlines. So not what you would read on the BBC and other outlets. Actually, Harry, to be fair, I think it's on the sort of background quirky stuff that people wouldn't really know about that you do go into depth on Middle East analysis. And personally, I find that far more interesting. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And also what I try to do every now and then as I'm talking politics, I also discuss a little bit religious politics because religion is very much part and parcel of that region. All three monotheistic traditions have their viewpoints, they have their standpoints, they have their conflicts and their clashes. So it's also good to remind our listeners that unlike the West, which is by and large far more secular, that in the Middle East, religion, sectarianism, all these things that we in the West pretend that we've overcome them, that they are very much a consideration in the political realities of that part of the world. You know, there is an archbishop, a retired archbishop in Liverpool, who often used to say to me that every time he went to Israel-Palestine, he came back just a little bit less foolish. Now, that's a very interesting way of him describing his visits to the Holy Land, as he used to call it. But for me also, even though, as you said, I go in and out, I've known the region for pretty much three decades, if not more, first as a patents and trademark lawyer across the whole region, and then sort of uh, going into politics a little bit and into conflict resolution. Even I, every time I go there, I see the differences. I see the differences in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria, in Jordan, in Palestine, in Israel, in the Gulf region. I mean, people who know the Gulf region and they visit Qatar now, for instance, would be amazed at the radical changes that have taken place because of the World Cup. And that is good news. It's positive news. It's not only conflict news that the region brings with it. So it's it's a mishmash of all uh, these uh, things. And we do the best we can. But while we do that, we also have fun. And that, to me, is key to the identity of this Middle East analysis. Well, we certainly do do the best we can and we shall continue to do so after 12 years which is uh, no no small feat now harry i did mention then that we it's, it's there are sort of human rights undertones aren't there to this podcast and you mentioned the religious aspect which you bring to the fore sometimes and that helps us i think segue into 
our first topic, which is the quite horrific attack on Salman Rushdie, the author, on the 12th of August, when he was stabbed repeatedly by 24-year-old Hadi Matar at a public lecture at the Chautauqua Institute in the US. Now, you know, without sort of dredging up the whys and, and, you know, what brought this on, and a 24-year-old is comparatively young to be if you like, acting on a fatwa, a religious edict. We don't particularly know the ins and outs of his motivation. But what have you got to say initially on this, Harry? Well, initially, a few thoughts on that to share with our listeners, James. First of all, let me sort of start by saying that for a different kind of analysis, a more technical, legalistic uh, analysis of uh, the Salman Rushdie controversy with his novel, The Satanic Verses, and this attack on his life, people can always go back uh, to my YouTube uh, about a week or so ago, where I went into all this and into the Islamic scholarship. And I did that by holding in my hand a dissertation that I had written at the law school uh, here in the UK in London on this particular controversy with Salman Rushdie and all the Uh, discussions to do with blasphemy and incitement to hatred and what have you. And I went through the loops there and I explained a little bit what was happening and I made a promise to my listeners on YouTube that I would digitize that uh, dissertation in order to post it on my Epictasis website. And why digitize it? Because I'm a fossil who wrote (laughs) this dissertation when uh, computers were not as popular as they are today. So I need to sort of scan it, uh, correct it a little bit, and then uh, bring it out as a dissertation of some 35 pages, which really, really looks at the whole situation religiously, politically, but also legally. Now, let's first of all say the satanic verses. Now, part of the controversy of this book, the satanic verses of this novel, centered actually on the fictional dream sequences that involved the Muslim prophet Muhammad in the work of what I call, or what is called, I suppose, magical realism. And this is where the Muslim protesters decried it as blasphemous. Now, it didn't work. But what happened is that the reaction from the uh, Muslim world came as a consequence of a religious edict by the then spiritual leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, against this novel and against the author of the novel and against anybody who helped publish this novel. This came out in the the book came out in 1988. The edict came a few months later in early 1989. And it sparked mass protests in places like India, Pakistan, and elsewhere. Less so, I must admit, in the Arab world, which is basically our neighborhood for MEA. Now, why so? I think partly, though not entirely, partly because the Arab world was more focused on the first Palestinian intifada at the time, the uprising of Palestinians against Israeli occupation. And also, if you remember, it was during the time of the Iran-Iraq war. So the Arab world was pretty busy with that, and therefore there was less of a very strong, venomous reaction to the novel Uh, than in places like Pakistan and India and elsewhere. But this attack that happened that you mentioned in your intro or in your question against uh, Salman Rushdie in New York, it struck close to home amongst many of Lebanon's Shi community. Now, why? 
because you mentioned that the assailant, the 24-year-old Hadi Matar, is himself a dual Lebanese-US citizen. His father lives still in a village in the Hezbollah-dominated southern Lebanon. His mother has said she lives in the United States with him. She said that she believes that her son's visit to his father's village in the south of Lebanon, in the village of Yarun, in 2018, about, what, four years ago, turned him into a religious zealot. Now, that's the justification the mom, the mother, gives from the States. The father has stayed mum. He has been silent. He hasn't said anything. But there have been quite a few reactions to this attempt against uh, Salman Rushdie. Some journalists in the Arab world, including in Lebanon, journalists like Dima Sadiq, for instance, have been trolled because of their position in support of freedom of belief and expression. And there have been others as well. For instance, I'll give you an example, James, the British Egyptian novelist, very famous in the Arab world, Ahdaf Swift, suggested that the real shock to many readers of Rushdie's novel was that the language he used to describe the prophet was jokey. It was a familiar language, one that he generally used to describe his characters. That's what I meant by magical realism a couple of minutes ago. It was a radical uh, departure from the usual venerating tone that people are used to when they talk about their religious leaders, including Muslim leaders and definitely, most definitely, the prophet himself. So there have been reactions when the novel came out and there have been reactions to the stabbing uh, itself. Uh, For instance, in the past, I know Arab literary giants, I remember when I was doing my dissertation that I just mentioned, Arab literary giants like, I don't know, the Palestinians, Mahmoud Darwish and Edward Said, the Lebanese Amin Ma'louf, the Algerian Muhammad Arkun, all responded through their writing, whilst others, such as Fawaz Trabulsi, for instance, was more vehement and he spoke out very much against the fact that they were trying to muzzle Salman Rushdie, etc., etc. So there have been those currents that have mixed politics with religion. And, uh, you know, in one of my tweets, and I think you and I discussed this at some stage, not today, but earlier, and I said, what is the connection between uh, Salman Rushdie, the novelist himself, and Naguib Mahfouz? Who is Naguib Mahfouz? Naguib Mahfouz is the Egyptian Nobel laureate, and he and uh, Taha Hussein are the Egyptian literary giants of the Arab world. Now, in uh, 1993, Naguib Mahfouz wrote, only ideas can correct ideas. And Mahfouz, whose uh, publications, whose books include things that are very famous in the Arab world, Trilogy, The Children of uh, Gebelawi, etc., he basically wrote this. But interestingly enough, a year later, He himself survived a stabbing attack by two Islamists who, interestingly enough, at their trial, admitted that they'd never read his work. So in a sense, this is what's happening. I doubt very much that Hadi Matar, 
who attempted to kill Salman Rushdie in New York a few weeks ago, that he had even read that book. So, you know, it, it sort of evokes questions in your mind that people who are protesting, are they really protesting against the corpus of the writings, this novel, that of Naguib Mahfouz, others, or whether they're basically doing it because of this emotive reaction that they consider as disrespect of their religious beliefs, or is it because they're being incited by other people for political purposes to come out and protest often violently against those who believe that they have the right to write whatever they do. Now, for me, I'm always somebody who says, absolutely, freedom of expression is an inviolable right, but we are people who've been endowed with a mind and a conscience, and we should use it, and there is no point in being provocative for the sake of provocation. I'll stop this sentence there because this is a very argumentative sentence, and for those who want to listen more about this sentence, please go back to my YouTube link. Yeah, very well said. Harry H on YouTube, but you can Google it and find that, and perhaps we'll put that link up as well. Now, Harry, shall we move on to Palestinian matters? Let's do that. Right. So the first thing that we'll talk about were those raids on the six or seven Palestinian NGOs, those human rights groups in the West Bank on the 18th of, of August, isn't it? Because you talk about things that just chip away and, and you know, uh, oppressive and heavy handed measures on the part of the Israelis. And you have these organisations that are Adamir, which is a prisoner support and human rights organisation, Al-Haq, protecting and promoting human rights, the Bison Centre for Research and Development, Defence for Children International Palestine, the Union of Palestinian Women's Committees, the Union of Agricultural Work Committees, and the Union of Health Work Committees. Now, that's quite a cross-section of of civil institutions, isn't it? And Israel has been accused of acting with impunity. And that is a word that you wanted to talk about and delve a bit deeper as to the meaning of that. Indeed, and I must raise my hat, uh, James, to you, because if you'd asked me to name those six or seven Palestinian human rights and civil society organizations, I would have probably been able to do only two or three, Al-Haq, because everybody knows them, and it was co-founded by a dear friend of mine, a Jerusalemite lawyer himself, Jonathan Kutab, by Ed Damir, and maybe one other, but then I would have sort of tried to desperately use my search engine to try and remember what the others are. But er No, no, ha- happy to do that. But it, it, to, to, to get to the number of it from my perspective, and do correct me if I'm wrong, these raids were justified, in inverted commas, due to so-called links with terrorism. Is that how the Israelis justified it? Yes, they justified it because they accused those six or seven organizations of basically being agents for PFLP, which is one of the more radical Palestinian, radical between inverted commas, Palestinian organizations. And of course, the reaction indicates that this was a big, big, big uh, blunder, big boo-boo, because these organizations are so well-known and well-respected internationally that Israel basically revealed its hand for being an oppressive apartheid society or power that uses this power, again, as you said, with impunity. And I just look around me. I mean, there have been calls, yes, on the Assembly of States, parties, and the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, the ICC, to intervene and to protect 
to ensure the viability of these organizations working to submit evidence to the court. But ask yourself this question, what has the United States, Israel's closest ally, done as a consequence of this raid at 3 a.m. in the night of the 18th of August? They said they are concerned. Well, I'm so chuffed that the Americans are concerned. What did Europe do? The European Consul General went and visited some of those people who run those organizations, had conversations with them, came up with a number of statements expressing concern about what is happening. Okay, they are sending also more secret and coded messages to their countries saying that this is unacceptable. But publicly, did Europe, did the EU, did the UK do anything that adds to the pressure on Israel to say, hold on, we must be a little bit careful because there is a blowback, there is scrutiny, there is uh, there are Europeans who are looking at what we're doing. No. And worse than that, let me ask you the third question, James. What are the Arab states doing? What are Arabs doing? What is the Arab League doing? I mean, are they doing anything? We always have a tendency to say, oh, the United States. Well, the United States, as far as I'm concerned, I can't really see uh, those uh, two, Israel and the United States, being separated. They are umbilically uh, linked together. Yet, at the moment, there are movements in Washington, D.C., but those movements are very small at the moment. Europe, we always say Europe is not working. Well, Europe has its own problems. Look at Europe today. You can't listen to one radio program. You can't watch one uh, program on your telly. You can't talk to any one person whose only concern is uh, oil and gas energy prices. Uh, Can we have enough money to... Uh, put uh, food on the table? Is it a choice between heating and eating? All this is what Europe is, uh, uh, is today traumatized with and, of course, if not and, but also affected by the Russia-Ukraine war. These are the European uh, concerns in the European continent, more than about seven organizations in occupied Palestine that are being raided, shuttered, and all their computers and everything taken and put into military uh, vans. So the question that I ask, what about the Arabs? I always used to hear, we are one people, we are one religion, we are this, we are that. Now, there's hardly a whimper from one or two countries, and the rest of the countries are not talking in the face, again I say this, with a lot of sadness in my heart. Why sadness? Not because I'm much more uh, sensitive to uh, discrimination than anybody else, but because I've spent two decades working on this conflict, and instead of seeing it get better, I see it regress, get worse. So what do I see? I see increasing impunity. And that is the impunity that really, really worries me. So, yes, you wanted me to talk about impunity. Shall I start, James, with what I would call a definition of impunity? Yeah, we could do with that because it's a word that's bandied around and and to get a tight definition would be useful. Now, the term impunity for me refers, and then I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll turn a little bit academic and refer to two or three much better known uh, academics than myself. But personally, for me, the term impunity 
refers uh, to an exemption from punishment for the consequences of an action that would otherwise be deemed wrongful and in need of restitution or justice. In other words, this is me being the lawyer. I was trying to be legalese to you, just to impress you that I do have some legal degrees. But forget that definition which I put together uh, on the hoof in a legal way. In a more layman's terms, laywoman's terms, it's impunity is a lack of accountability, an exemption or a freedom from punishment. You do something, you get away with it. This is basically what impunity means for yours truly, for Harry. But there are also other more sophisticated definitions of uh, uh, impunity. For instance, the academic, there is an academic author, Rikhov, he defines impunity within the international context as an exemption from prosecution and punishment of a perpetrator of international crime. An occupying democracy, he calls it, and that's what we're talking about. An occupying democracy is a term that is used by many ac academics when they talk about Israel. It's a democracy, but the contradiction there is that it's a democracy which occupies another country and other people. Desires, whom many people know, also refers to impunity as a means of excusing officials for their actions and allowing them to continue their crimes without uh, prosecution. And finally, in terms of definitions, Mayor Field outlines impunity more strictly, I think, as a failure by national justice systems due to governments being unable or unwilling to prosecute individuals or authorities that have committed crimes. So basically, coming, stepping down from this highfalutin uh, academic roof to more of what we would say when we're having a pint of Guinness, you and I, in the pub, impunity is basically lack of accountability. You go, you shuttle those six, seven organizations, they're worldwide. They've got so many, so many awards between themselves. The people who work there are such good-intentioned uh, people who are desperately trying to preserve the human rights of their societies and their communities, you go and shutter their doors, you claim without any proof available as yet. And that's not Harry telling you, that's many people telling you, James. You shutter their place and they say, you're not going to exist anymore. And what happens? Nobody says, hold on, what the dickens are you doing? No ICC reaction, no this reaction, no that reaction, no Arab reaction. Uh, 30, 40 years ago, 20 years ago, if anything like this happened to the Palestinians, the Arab political world, forget the street, the street is always pro-Palestinian, but the street has its own problems. They hardly have enough breath left in them to go out and demonstrate again. But the political leadership would say, no, 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 this is unacceptable, sanctions close the spigots, uh, do something with all the money that is going through SWIFT into the international uh, forum, do this, that, and the other. Nothing. Silence. So that, to me, is uh, impunity. And here, and I've already warned you of this, 
when we were talking off mic, James. So again, apology to you and also to our listeners. I will conclude my word on impunity because a lot of people have asked me, is impunity a legal uh, thing? It's not a legal thing in the in the kind of legal thing you open your uh, casebook and you find a chapter on impunity, but it's basically going in there through convention. So I'm going to conclude this part myself, and then you can please explain or ask or do whatever you want. Uh, I want to quote, and I've written this uh, on a piece of paper I want to read, Professor Edward Kaufman who, at the University of Maryland and the University of uh, Haifa, who also was involved in the awards received by Al-Haq, uh, human rights organization in Palestine alongside Beth Salem in Israel. And he said, and I will quote an excerpt of what he said. He wrote as a reply to an article in one of the papers. I think, it, I don't know which paper it was. Now Palestinian NGOs, he wrote, are being closed down and most likely their workers will also become victims of such blatant form of human rights violation." From one side of the occupied territories, it is being extended gradually on the pre-1967 Israel. And workers at Beth Salem, which is the Israeli human rights organization, a wonderful organization, are detained and at risk of being arrested themselves. The propaganda theme that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East has been eroded. It cannot remain an occupier democracy. Here we go again, that's the phrase. As a professor of human rights in world politics at Kaufman Rights, I do not hesitate to call all genuine democracies to stand up, governments, civil societies, students, academics, everybody, to protest this infringement of individual and group rights and remain personally committed to join any struggle that will demand the freedom of association of human rights organizations against arbitrary actions. I end the quote, put the paper back on my file, and I say, James, what he's calling for is activism. Activism against impunity, activism against discrimination, activism against violation of human rights by all sorts of cooked up uh, pretexts. And of course, he has a Jewish surname, so one presumes he's Jewish. Yes, he is Jewish. Kaufman, uh, Professor Edward Jew- uh, Kaufman is Jewish, and that also gives him credibility, because I know as an Armenian, when I say something that criticizes Armenians, people say, how can you dare to say that you're Armenian? Yes, I'm Armenian, but when I see it wrong, I see it wrong, and I say it. So uh, all... Uh, courage and to him for doing that himself. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have many more comments because I actually think that's a really succinct way of analysing it. But if if we're talking an occupation which is seen as illegal in international law, we shouldn't be particularly surprised, should we, about, you know, the closure of these six, seven human rights organisations? We shouldn't be surprised. The only thing we should be surprised is that even an occupation under international law has its rules. Just as there are laws and rules as to how you wage a war, there are rules and laws about how you run an occupation. 
But when that management of an occupation becomes increasingly more oppressive, more suppressive, more discriminating, more inhuman, more apartheid-like, then it behoves upon, as Ed Kaufman said, activists of all forms to stand up and speak out because we're going down a slippery slope. And unless something is done, either through a political solution, which at the moment uh, looks very far-fetched, or through putting tools and measures that would stop this kind of violation of human rights, then I'm afraid we're going into a very, very dangerous slope. And we in Europe and the world have seen what happens when people become too powerful and they think they can do whatever they want without any checks, without any constraints and without any accountability. Can I, for the political side of it, can I segue into the JCPOA agreement? Well, definitely do that, because I know you're also going to mention the engagement of the Crown Prince of Jordan, which got me thinking that MEA might turn into Hello magazine or something. So <laughs> let's, let's, let's go back to the Iranian nuclear deal. Let's go to the Iranian deal, the JCPOA. All I would say about the JCPOA is that we're all growing old as the Americans and the Iranians are negotiating, bartering. It's like a a souk, a market. Give me this, no, take that. I can give you that. No, I can't give you uh, that. The EU, the European side of the JCPOA, is more or less agreed that we have the agreement there. It requires uh, signature. It's the Iranians and the Americans who haven't yet Agreed, And of course, in that, it's very interesting because one very, very, very firm opponent of the JCPOA is Israel, and it's using all its influence and lobbying power in the United States to help deter uh, President Joe Biden from signing or agreeing to this JCPOA Mark II. I think they're beginning to realize that they might be on a losing game here. Interestingly enough, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, the in other words, the Gulf countries, the uh, nations in, in, in the Gulf, they were against the JCPOA that Obama's administration put together and then signed in 2018. They are less against it now. I think they have accepted the reality of what's happening in the new geostrategic movements in the Gulf region, less dependency on America, more neighborly relations, economic versus military, etc., etc. And one example of that is the UAE only very recently returned its ambassador to Tehran, and there was an exchange of ambassadors, which shows that the UAE, which always portrays itself as the pragmatist in the group of GCC countries, that they are basically saying, okay, we have to live with this, but We don't like it, but we live with it so long as we have some uh, clear lines about it. So that's the JCPOA. And I personally, and again, you remember, I'm not a prophet, but I would say that the signature would be forthcoming when, next week, the week after, I don't know. But I think eventually it will come and it's getting a bit tiresome. So they, they have to decide whether they want to do it or not. Interestingly enough, both the United States and Iran, both of them, so much want this agreement to happen. The Iranian economy is 
on the floor and it needs all those monies, the sanctions to be lifted and the money to come back in and the oil to be sold freely. The Americans want this to show uh, a Biden administration success, particularly before the midterm congressional elections in November. So I think it will happen, barring a last minute hitch. So fingers crossed. I don't know. Would, would Iranian oil flowing again help our energy bills in the UK, Harry, as of a total aside? Would. Of course it would. And it's a very good question. And the Iranians have already said that, that uh, once the sanctions are removed, once the money comes in, it'll be in billions and then in trillions, money that's been held. Uh, once that comes in and once they're allowed to sell their uh, their oil, there will be more ability for Europe, for its bills and for its energy policies. Indeed. And I think, I mean, the Americans at one stage were even thinking of going and asking Venezuela to provide the oil. So if they're willing to go to Venezuela, which is another prior state as far as American official policies are concerned, Iran uh, might not be it. So we'll see. We'll see. It's, uh, it's there. About the engagement, all I'll say about the engagement is just congratulations or mabruk in Arabic. Just as you said, hello magazine strikes here in the name of uh, Harry the Armenian. Uh, Just to say that the Crown Prince of Jordan recently got engaged to a Saudi national. Long may they have a long life and uh, all that. Uh, So, yes, but it was a big event. And the fact that he married a a Saudi national also has uh, political implications, like uh, is this strengthening the alliance between Jordan and Saudi Arabia, etc., etc.? But these are people who I suppose are in love and they want to be together. So, good luck to them. More of that to come on the pages of Hello Magazine, James. Well, much rejoicing at the Royal Hashemite Court. I knew you'd pass comment, Harry, but why not? Why not? Now, did you want to conclude with a quick word on the World Cup in Qatar? Do you want to take the World Cup and I finish with the sober sentence or do you want me to do the sober sentence and then you go out with the World Cup? Well, you're stereotyping me as a football-obsessed gentleman, so you're not maybe we'll do that first. But you're very, you know your football and you love your football. So the World Cup... Let's go there. Let's go to James. Doha. Let's go to Doha, James, November 2022. So tell me about it yourself. Well, I mean, what is there to say? I think it's it's breaking new ground. It's very interesting to have a World Cup in, let's be honest, a hot place, which is why, in fact, it's happening in November, isn't it, really? Indeed. Probably the first time since, well, I was going to say for a long time, but obviously COVID disrupted the um, the football leagues around the world, particularly in the UK. So this is going to necessitate an interesting break and what that does for the domestic leagues is going to be very interesting but obviously the world cup takes precedence i think it's going to be interesting to see qatar as a state and how it's sort of opening its arms to the world and how the world reciprocates i'm sure you find that an interesting point harry i find that fascinating the way qatar has been working toward getting ready for welcoming the world cup in a three months' time. Indeed, I mean, uh, I know Qatar, I've been there, I, I very much like the country, and I can tell you, Qatar today is not what Qatar was pre-pandemic. The amount of work that's gone on 
to try and prepare the country, the stadiums, Lusail and others, the metro, the motorways, the accommodation, the floating hotels, the activities, it is mind-boggling. And what makes it possible to have such a mind-boggling transformation, it's once in a lifetime, which is brilliant because it's going to serve Qatar for decades and decades to come uh, after this World uh, Cup. But what makes it possible is that with this huge transformation in the infrastructure and the soft power of Qatar, come the billions of dollars they have and therefore that they can afford to pay for those changes. This is why it's fascinating. Number one, First time ever that the World Cup takes place in an Arab country, and for that matter, an Arab Muslim country. Secondly, the fact that there is obsession almost in the Arab world with football. You'd use the word obsessed, so I will return the compliment. Arabs love football, and Qatar is a good performing team, so I hope I'm not jinxing their chances. But uh, so it's going to be fascinating, and it's going to be fascinating for me. I will not be there during the World Cup. It's going to be crazy, and I don't want to be caught up in that uh, craziness. But I'm going to go and visit, and the, the the transformation of the country, I've been told by people who have been in and out, academics, think tanks, uh, tourists, is breathtaking. So uh, very, very interesting uh, to visit it during the World Cup, if you like, to follow the course of a ball uh, on a pitch, or later to enjoy what Qatar will be able to offer. Imagine they even... Floating hotels, okay, we've heard about that. They've even got agreements with Saudi Arabia and I think the UAE to have daily flights, bringing in supporters to come and watch the matches and then go back because the country is too small to be able to accommodate the millions of people who are going to travel to Qatar specifically for this uh, match. And, uh, of course, uh, tickets are fast becoming... Uh, at a premium. Do you know, the only point I've got, and I might actually turn this and ask you the question just to get your opinion more than anything else. You look at the fact that it's the first World Cup in um, an Arab country, which is fascinating in itself, but it also makes you think, I mean, the temperatures are still going to be hot in November, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Surely we're looking at mid-30s at the least. No, low 30s. Low 30s. But I wonder if nonetheless it still levels ever so slightly the playing field for... Countries that are credible, good football playing countries like Morocco, for instance, some of those North African countries, maybe some of those Arab countries are going to do quite considerably better than they might have done otherwise. Do you think that's true? Let me insert one of my favorite uh, countries there, Algeria. And because you know about football so much more than I can learn for the rest of my life, I wanted to throw that in just to try and impress you. But Will it enhance the chances of countries, teams that usually play in hotter climates? Yes and no. Okay, they have more resilience. It will be in the low 30s. It might even be a bit less. It might be a bit more. We don't know with this crazy climatic changes. But what they've also done with those billions of dollars that are poured in is that all these stadiums, where they have different stadiums, all these stadiums where these matches are going to be played have air conditioning. And they've already tried it because they've had some matches 
not on the World Cup level, but regional golf matches, etc., etc., with the Qatar team as well. And they've used those air conditioning systems and they work. So in a sense, they will have that. And you know what? Qatar is a small country. And this is a serious statement. It's a small country in the Gulf that actually is very pro-Western in its policies. It has helped the United States, but it has also helped Europe a lot. And it is trying to help Europe more and more with its gas exports in view of the Russia issue. It is a country that was blockaded unjustly, in my opinion, and I've written amply about that a few years ago only. It managed to turn around, improve its situation, and also host a World Cup. For me, that is brilliant because it says a lot about Qatar as a country, about Qataris as an Arab people, and as I said to boot, an Arab Muslim country. So, of course, there are going to be issues, behavioral issues, cultural issues, alcohol-related issues, but it is an experiment. And if it means inclusivity in what uh, a friend of mine calls the global village, then good luck, Qatar. That's all I can say. Well, you have one more topic, Harry. This is only my prayers, my thoughts, my sad thoughts and my ardent prayers for little Olivia's family. Olivia is a little, tiny, nine-year-old girl who was caught in a crossfire between two people with guns chasing each other, barged into her house. She was sat there. She got caught in the crossfire. She was killed. A nine-year-old who was the life and soul of the family and the school she was in, she was killed from all this thuggery. I mean, armed thuggery? I mean, we're, we're becoming used to that sometimes, unfortunately, in the States, but surely not in the UK, not here in our country. And so my thoughts and prayers uh, to her grieving family in Liverpool. It's a sad moment, and there are many such sad moments, but this one stands out for me because of her age. That little girl had so much of life ahead of her, and it was robbed in the most inhumane way possible. And I really hope that the perpetrator of that crime will be brought to justice and that justice will be meted out. Yeah, I can't add anything to that. An absolute horrific tragedy that I'm sure touched the uh, hearts of everyone that sadly looked on on that situation and thoughts and prayers with her family too absolutely harry well what can i say we've tackled many many topics and always fascinated by your insight and i thank you for that very very useful stuff thank you harry i do presume you are still game for joining us in september i'm game for joining you in september all i would say is it's a podcast with a link Click on it, listen to the first theme, then click out and then come back three days later and listen to part two. We're not doing 24-hour news, we're doing analysis. So what applies today can, to a large extent, apply tomorrow and the day after as well. 
I think the truth is, Harry, that a lot of podcasts these days, they were shorter maybe five, six, seven years ago, but uh, these days they're quite long form. They're very conversational. They do dip in and out. Um, Hopefully, listeners, you've found something that piques your interest and have got something from it. Sincerely hope so. As we said earlier, this is designed to look at the different realities, to probe a bit, to look behind the story a little bit. To challenge people and to let them say, aha, this is how I think if they thought about the matter. But you know what? There is another viewpoint. Let's consider it as well. Let's do that. And I hope we have done that. And I hope we've provoked further thought. So for this month, Harry, thank you ever so much. And you know, I've got news for you, James. You said dip in and out. I'm going to Mm -hmm. go now and dip into some hummus with pita bread and a glass of Ariane, which is yogurt drink. So there you are. I'm maintaining our uh, Mina Gulf uh, consistency for another half hour before I rush to the airport. And to juxtapose that, I am going to take my little handleless coffee cup that I got in the West Bank and I'm going to pour myself an Arabic coffee to get over this whopping podcast. And to that I say enjoy the caffeine and uh, bon appétit or as we say in Arabic also sahtain, James. A great pleasure. Thanks ever so much, Harry.